All right, so we are starting our journey in the book of Habakkuk. And no, we didn't pick that book because I'm mad at any of you guys. Um, it is a minor prophet, but I do think it is a, it is a beautiful um, picture of some things that we need to hear and see in our day. And Habakkuk uh, is, is a book that I have um, studied and returned to often personally, so this is a, a wonderful opportunity for me to dive into it deeper. Um, there is a devotional that is available on, uh, on our website. You should have received it. Let me confess something to you. The current copy that you have is atrocious. The editing was terrible on my part, and I'm sorry. Um, I have a friend who is a humanities teacher and an English teacher, and I sent it to her, and it came back bleeding blood red. And so, um, and I'm thankful for that. I, I am a horrible editor, and, and oftentimes don't leave enough margin in producing these things for editing. From here on, I will, and uh, Dr. Sellers is going to help me with that. So, if you downloaded it, do me a favor in honor of the Lord, throw it away and download the new one. It'll be up on the website tomorrow. Uh, Josh will have it up on the website because I've actually got it finished and, and I'll send it off to him. And I, I, I think it's clearer and it's better and it's missing the first one was just missing words. I don't even know what happened. So anyway but that, that is available to you and I would encourage you to use it as a family devotional. Um, use it as an opportunity to help your kids also understand these glorious words from this minor prophet uh, this word of God to us today. And I think it's simple enough that you can do that and so also would encourage you to use it in any way that you can missionally, to reach out to other people, to engage with co-workers, to engage with neighbors, any way that you can use it, please do, for the glory of God. All right, so as we start on this journey of Habakkuk, I have a question for us that I think um, really helps set the stage for us understanding why would we do this book. And so the opening question that I have for you is, is do you ever just look around at the world and, and just wonder what in the world's going on? Do you, ever, do you ever look around at things and wonder if, if like Habakkuk is going to do, that may, maybe God's busy somewhere else in the universe? Maybe there is life on some other planet and he's just busy with that. And I don't believe that, by the way, so don't send me an email. But there's times where it just, it seems like, it seems like that God has turned the other way. Now, I know it's not true, but there's just times it's hard to see, especially um, if you look at what has gone on in the Middle East under the, the hand of ISIS. Um, there was a particularly heartbreaking set of images. Uh, there was an Iraqi church that they were in the middle of their worship services, and they were absolutely overrun, and everybody was killed, men, women, children, and babies included. It was indiscriminate, the slaughter. And... and and I'll never be the same after having looked at it. Um, I, I've, I've seen um, uh, in India um, people who got out of a bus to share the gospel who were beaten to death for their faith. And the one thing that they asked, which was interesting, those who survived as they got back on the bus and they were talking to, there was a, a couple of Americans with them, they said these things. They, they said, what can we do for you? And they said, do you guys even know we exist and are you praying for us? They didn't ask for money. They didn't ask for us to come do their job for them. They didn't ask for us to bomb uh, Bombay. They didn't ask for us to do any of that. What they asked for us to do singularly, as they were willing to, after they had had bones broken and seen their friends killed, they were willing to go back into the midst of that and share the gospel. And they just asked, would you pray for us? 
And so as I look around at the world, I have to confess, and maybe this is some of the weakness of my own faith and doubt that I would confess to you, I I wonder sometimes. I struggle. Now, I always come back to the touchstone of, of, of who God says He is and that, and that He is the only one, the only one who can make any of this right. He is the only one who can bring meaning to any of the things that I look at and I go, I just don't understand God. And, and if you're paying attention at all to what's going on in the world, I don't see how you can not be wrestling with those things. At every level. I don't care if it's local. I don't care if it's national. I don't care if it's worldwide. If you're paying attention at all, I don't know how you cannot question in the same way that Habakkuk does. And we often do. So having said that, let's look a little bit at what what is the, the situation in which Habakkuk is speaking into. Now this is critical. Now I know there's some of you who just aren't that crazy about us quoting kings' names and all that kind of stuff. Well, just, just hold on. It's only going to take three to five minutes and you'll be okay and then we'll get back to the text. But this is critical to us understanding this book. We cannot understand what Habakkuk's saying if we don't understand the politics and the situation that's going on in Jude. So, just to catch us up to speed on what's going on. Now, more than likely, scholars say that Habakkuk would have, would have prophesied somewhere between 609 B.C. and 605 B.C. They don't know exactly, but that would have been about the time that the Chaldeans under Nebuchadnezzar were, were beginning to rise. They were not in their full ascendancy. They were not fully in power as of yet, but they were coming. And that's what we're going to see uh, in, in the prophecy when God responds to Habakkuk's first complaint. Now, the situation in Judah uh, was, was absolutely disintegrating. Now, Josiah, if you remember, Josiah was a good king, and he had tried to reform. He had done everything he could, but he was killed in the Battle of Megiddo by Pharaoh Necho. Now, that's important for you to know because his sons would betray him by coming under tribute of Pharaoh Necho later on. The son that would take his place was Jehoiahaz. And Jehoiahaz was someone that the people selected. And again, why is that a problem? Haven't we heard this before? Didn't the people select another king? What was his name? How'd that go? It didn't go very well as far as the people were concerned. The kingdom wound up. So it was a mess. And so the people, again, make the mistake of choosing a king for themselves. Well, God lets him last for about three months. And then Pharaoh Necho comes and takes him and carries him off to Egypt where he will die. And Pharaoh Necho decides who is going to be king. He takes another son of Josiah, Eliakim, which means God provides. And he changes his name to Jehoiakim which means Yahweh provides. Now, why do you think Pharaoh would decide to change the name of one of God's own? What was he declaring? What did Pharaoh think he was? Pharaoh was saying, I am God, and I now rule your place. And so he, he set up Jehoiakim, and Jehoiakim ruled for 11 years, and he was evil in the sight of the Lord. And so this is the circumstance into which the Chaldeans will come as an instrument and vessel of the Lord's judgment upon his own people. And so it's, it's important that we understand the gravity of the situation. But let me ask you, does any of that sound familiar at all? I mean, think about it. Here, Josiah's own son would basically partner and submit himself to the man who slaughtered his father and who would subsequently seek to take apart everything that Judah was supposed to be. 
as if he'd had no understanding of the history of his own people who had spent over 400 years in slavery and tribute to Egypt before. He's just returning again to the yoke of slavery. What does that sound like? Are we called to return again to the yoke of slavery? No, Galatians 5 tells us very clearly, do not do that. And so, the Lord will glorify himself in the midst of this in a way that for some, would be utterly mysterious. And it's going to, in a sense, confuse and unsettle and destabilize Habakkuk himself. But what we're going to see is that Habakkuk, over the coming weeks, that Habakkuk refuses to let go. And that's critical. See, so often I think we're afraid to question God. Now I know some of you, if, if, if you would like for me to die the death of a thousand qualifications here, would like for me to qualify the stew out of that, but I'm not going to. Because I think sometimes that that's where we get all hung up. That I've heard it said that if we truly care about somebody, if we truly respect them, then, then we ask questions of them. Then we speak to them. We go to them. We, we seek their, their wisdom. We seek their knowledge. We seek their loving kindness. And so the Lord our God is not bothered at all by the questions. What he's bothered by is the silence. What he is bothered by is that we would turn to lovers far less wild than he. And that's what we do, don't we? Instead of going to the Lord our God, trusting that he is ever faithful and unchanging. And saying, Lord, I appreciate you and I love you, but you help me out here. I don't understand what's happening. I don't understand why after someone had prayed for so long for a child, which you tell us is good, why? Why would it end? Why would it end in a way that is so devastating to her? And the questions abound even beyond those, don't they? And so, what I hope that we will recognize is that faith is not the absence of doubt at all. No, faith is actually holding on and clinging to the crucified in the midst of overwhelming doubt. That's where faith truly is tested and tried, is it not? So we're going to see that in Habakkuk. I do want us to read from the Shorter Catechism, question 11, because it's critically important that we keep in view God's sovereignty and providence in the midst of all this. I want to be careful, while I've made probably some of you uncomfortable talking about questioning God, I want to make clear that in no way am I questioning God's providence, in no way am I questioning God's sovereignty, and in no way am I questioning God's goodness. What I'm questioning is how it's all supposed to work out in the middle of this mess. And I trust, as Habakkuk does, and I will stand my watch to wait for him to answer. And I think it's critical that we understand how his providence works. So here from the Shorter Catechism, question 11, it says, What are God's works of providence? God's works of providence are his most holy, wise, and powerful, preserving and governing all his creatures, and all their actions. See, that's the thing that holds me fast, is I trust that God is holy, I trust that God is wise, and I trust that ultimately He is the only one powerful enough to protect and preserve any of us. Who do you think it is that tells the sea it can only go so far? And when it does rage past its banks for some reason that I don't necessarily understand, who do you think it is that tells it it must stop and cannot continue on and on and on until everything is destroyed? 
Who do you think it is that on D-Day said, this is where it will all end? Because I don't know if you know the story at all, but it always moves me that D-Day actually wasn't supposed to be the day that it happened. It was supposed to be a day before. But a horrific storm kept them from being able to launch D-Day. Over a thousand ships sailed into and into the area. They were probably 20 miles off the coast. So you tell me, how did no German U-boat see any of them? How did no one know what was going on except for a few Germans way up in the corner in Scandinavia? They're the only ones who broke the code and they were too late. The Panzer divisions were in, the Luftwaffe, everybody was far inland and couldn't make it in time. They'd gotten the date all wrong. Even Rommel wasn't there. He was actually on vacation for his wife's birthday. Who do you think orchestrated all that? And D-Day was launched actually a second time. And almost was a colossal failure even in that second launch. And yet the Lord our God said, this is where it will end. I trust that he is the one that is powerful and preserving and governing. And maybe you would ask, well, why did he let it start in the first place? I would turn the question back on you. Why do we let these things start in the first place? Why do we participate in them? Why do we turn a blind eye? Why do we isolate ourselves? Why do we have idols of safety and security? Those are the better questions, I think. With that all being said, let's turn to the text. We'll start with verses 1 through 4, and then we'll finish it up with verses 5 through 11. <laughs> if you would hear the word of the Lord again this morning. The oracle, or burden, that Habakkuk the prophet saw. O Lord, how long shall I cry for help, and you will not hear? Or cry to you violence, and you will not save? Why do you make me see iniquity? And why do you idly look at wrong? Destruction and violence are before me. Strife and contention arise. So the law is paralyzed and justice never goes forth. For the wicked surround the righteous. So justice goes forth perverted. Wow. What do you think about Habakkuk, who is a prophet, not coming to the people? Which is interesting that he didn't come to the people. Which way does Habakkuk go with his burden that he saw? He carries it to the Lord his God. Now why do you think he went in that direction instead of taking it to the people? Well, because he knew that it was worthless to go to the people. Because they couldn't fix it. And only the Lord his God could do anything that would change anything. This is interesting because most prophets go the other way. They're usually sent to the people, even when it could be meaningless. Remember, again and again, Jeremiah went to the people. And he got beat up, and he, and he, and he had the scroll cut up in front of him, uh, and, and all the things that happened to him. And he was told, listen, none of this is really going to work, but I want you to go again and again and again. But Habakkuk, we see very interestingly him coming first, as we know it, to the Lord his God with these incredible questions. I mean, do you recognize the weight and gravity of these questions? Do you hear what Habakkuk is ultimately saying? He says, and understand, based on what we're reading, it is very clear this is not the first time that Habakkuk has come to the Lord his God. It's not. He says, 
Oh Lord, how long shall I cry for help? And listen at this, he says, and you will not hear. How long will I cry violence and you will not see or save? Those are some pretty heavy questions, aren't they? How many of you uh, would confess openly in worship that you pray like that on a regular basis? I do. And I don't know how so many of us don't, given what goes on in and around us through the effects of the fall. Have we become so numb to what, what happens to those around us that we are no longer moved as Jesus was so beautifully moved over and over and over and the Lord our God has been moved over and over in his glorious compassion. How is it that we could be not so moved? Because I got news for you, as much as I like Kennesaw and the Ackworth area, this is not the New Jerusalem and this ain't home. And this is not somehow better than some of the inner city context in which I have lived. Sin reigns here just as much as it does there. Sin reigns in and around us just as much as it does other places, though we may have convinced ourselves otherwise. And so Habakkuk is, as his name means, wrestling with the things of the Lord his God, but he's also wrestling with things not being the way they should be. See, he seems to suggest that things ought to be a different way for the people of God. And implicit within that is the presupposition that truly, if we are the people of God, there ought to be something called shalom. There ought to be something that is peaceful and different about us. See, what Habakkuk is critiquing, ultimately, is that the people are no longer acting as if they, they are the people of God. They're no longer loving one another in such a way that the world could look on Judah and say, there's something different about them. How do we get to their place of worship? How do we come to know the Lord, their God, based on how they live? And so Habakkuk wants to know, why, God, are you allowing your name to be sullied so? See, ultimately, what I think our problem is, in part is that we really don't care about the glory of God like we ought to. See, uh, John Calvin said something very interesting about this text. And I'm going to give you the partial quote. But he said basically, he doesn't understand how any Christian who looks on the evil of the world is not moved to passion to speak, act, or do, or at least pray. How is it that you can call yourself a Christian and you look around and you don't do anything at all? except turn a blind eye, because it's just too much. Now let me also step in and say, as one who has spent time as a chaplain at a rescue mission and at a generationally uh, mission church in a generationally poor neighborhood, please hear me. I am, I am with you in recognizing that there sometimes it's just too much. In my own frailty, it's just so overwhelming. How could we ever fix something so broken? Broken at every level. Where do you even begin? And I'm not even talking the systemic level. In the neighborhood that I was in, just the, the concept of fixing the public school system or even offering an alternative seemed utterly impossible. 
utterly impossible. Not to mention just the family dynamics. How women understood men and children understood men in that neighborhood. Where do we even begin? Where do we put our shovel in the, in the ground? Now the good news is that the Lord answers that when we ask. But so often I am afraid we don't even ask. We just throw our hands up and back away and go, I don't, I don't want to get involved in this mess. Because just confessing Christ, right? That's enough, right? I mean, we're all going to get to heaven. I mean, we're going to heaven, right? Regardless of what we do, because works don't matter, right? Works don't matter. Works don't matter on one side of the coin. Works matter significantly on the other side of the coin. If you don't believe me, read Ephesians 2, 1 through 10, and make sure you read 10. Because we have been created for good works and being transformed into the image of Christ. We too are given the vision to see where everybody else would rather go blind. And so Habakkuk, who sees this burden, this heavy vision that he is carrying, has brought to the Lord his God these grand and difficult and borderline blasphemous questions. And I think that if we, the church, are unwilling to step into that liminal space, the next generation is going to completely and utterly disregard us. Not because God is not good and he may reach them another way, but we may find ourselves out of a job. Because people are tired of silly and pat answers. They're tired of us looking the other way. They are tired of us valuing safety and security over redemption and reconciliation and justice and what the gospel truly came to do. Now just for those of you who just got nervous, who thought that I placed justice above the preaching of the word or the gospel, let me make it very clear to you. That is not at all what I just said. And in fact, I can't say what I just said if those other things are not in place. For those of you who know me, you know that my first move is going to be to preach the gospel. And I think that it is founded only upon that that we can do anything at all. We have power in nothing else. I don't even think there's such a thing as the social gospel. I don't think you can stick that word next to it. I think it's foolishness. And so, listen to what John Currid says. Now, John Currid is a scholar who's also an archaeologist. And he was at RTS Jackson for a number of years. Now I think he's at RTS Charlotte, if I'm not mistaken. But he wrote a commentary on Habakkuk called The Expectant Prophet. Listen, listen to what he says for a second. He says, an idiom of evangelicalism in the West is this. This will make some of you feel better about what I just said. That it is a mile wide and an inch deep. You ever heard that? You ever seen it? But the reality is that God wants thoughtful Christians. That is, the ones who are not simply borne along by the ways and the winds of the world. He wants people to ponder and consider the eternal questions. He wants for us to see as Habakkuk sees. He wants for us to care enough to ask the types of questions that Habakkuk would ask. It means that we're looking on things and saying, no, this is, this is not the way it's supposed to be. And that is not an arrogant thing to do, by the way. Children shouldn't be losing their lives to things that we have 
the ability to cure. People should not be drinking water filled with worms that will make them go blind when we have the ability to give them clean water. And that's just a couple of examples and there are many more, aren't there? So let me ask you, are you a thoughtful Christian? Do, do you honor the Lord our God by bringing Him your questions and your doubts and your concerns and the things that unsettle you and the things that destabilize you? Do you take them to Him? Or do you go seeking after lovers far less wise, far less wild, far less caring, far less capable of bringing to pass what you desire to see brought to pass? Let's turn back to the text, verses 5 through 11. This is now God's response to Habakkuk's initial complaint. Listen at what God says. God says, Look among the nations and see, wonder, and be astounded. For I am doing a work in your days that you would not believe if told. For behold, I am raising up the Chaldeans, that bitter and hasty nation who march through the breadth of the earth to seize dwellings not their own. They are dreaded and fearsome. Their justice and dignity go forth from themselves. Their horses are swifter than leopards, more fierce than the evening wolves. Their horsemen press proudly on. Their horsemen come from afar. They fly like an eagle swift to devour. They all come for violence, all their faces forward. They gather captives like sand. At kings, they scoff. And at rulers, they laugh. They laugh at every fortress, for they pile up earth and take it. For they sweep by like the wind and go on. Guilty men, whose own might is their God. I don't know about you, but if I were Habakkuk, and I went and I asked him all these questions, and this is how he responded? Would you not be a little upset or destabilized or unsettled? Wait a second, God. Let me see if I get this right. You're going to take a group of people who worship themselves to overwhelm and judge your own people. Well, what's interesting is, wait a minute now, who is it that's, that, that's, that's being judged? What is the condition of God's people? Who are they worshiping? Themselves. Who had they decided was their king? They picked one for themselves. Who had they decided they should be in allegiance with? The very enemies of God who had kept them in slavery for over 400 years. So God is in fact saying, I'm going to give the people exactly what it is that they wanted. They want violence? We'll give them violence. See, the people had, had the law and they had the very presence of the Lord their God in the promised land in, in, in Judah. And Josiah had brought about reforms that were as quickly ignored no faster than his blood could finish spilling from his body. See, they had rejected, in essence, the means of grace. They had rejected all that the Lord had offered to them to make them, in fact, his people. And so, in deciding to go their own way, to step outside of this hedge of protection, as it were, he was giving them over to what existed outside that very hedge. 
Now this should be a warning to you all, myself included. This should be a very stern warning that what exists for us outside of the hedge of protection of the Lord our God and the power of the Holy Spirit is devastating. It is crushing. It is awful. And there is no glory in it. There is no honor in it at all. And so it becomes very important that we not reject the means of grace. So if you're with us this morning and you're wondering, well, what are these means of grace? Just so I don't mess up and reject them. Well, I'm glad you asked. They are, and not necessarily in order, but maybe so, the Word of God itself. So if you reject the Word of God, whether it's preached, prayed, sung, in your personal devotions, if you don't think you need it, it's an antiquated book that doesn't have anything to say about our day at all. You are cutting yourself off from one of the ways that the Lord has chosen to reveal Himself in a manner that could draw us to Him and bring us to salvation in Christ alone, by faith alone, by grace alone. The other means are attached to the Word, in essence, They're the sacraments, and we're going to get to witness one of them here this morning in baptism. The other is the Lord's Supper. Both are wonderful opportunities for us to see God's grace made visible in the act of of engaging in both. And in both, something very mysterious happens to our faith in the power of the Holy Spirit. And the last means of grace is one that we have emphasized here and will continue to emphasize because of how weak we tend to be in this, myself included. Prayer. Prayer is one of those wonderful means of grace. And so what do we see Habakkuk exemplifying in terms of the means of grace that was available to him? He in prayer is coming to the Lord his God. And he is in fact quoting the word of God and saying, According to your very word, this is not the way that it's supposed to be. It should not be like this. He's not coming up with something of his own imagination, you understand. He's not looking at Judah and saying, man, I really wish Judah were more like what I would want it to be. He's looking at Judah and saying, no, God, this is not the way you want it to be. So how can you sit idly by? And God answers and says, I'm not sitting idly by at all, as it turns out. I'm raising up a people who will destroy a man who thinks he's God. See, what's interesting is that Pharaoh is going to lose his life at the Battle of Carchemish. And all of the bondage of Egypt is going to be thrown off, but in its place is going to be the bondage of the Chaldeans with the Babylonians, which isn't a whole lot better, by the way. And this is where the book of Daniel kind of comes in, and you see kind of what goes on in exile. And it's going to lead to a very painful time in the life of God's people as they will enter into exile. And then a time of, of, of great distress will befall them. But why? Because they had rejected the means of grace. And the same is true for us if we're not careful. When we turn ourselves over to things. Or God turns us over to things. And so... Here God is answered in a way that seems very mysterious and doesn't make a whole lot of sense to Habakkuk. And next week we're going to see how Habakkuk gives his second complaint. He gives his reply of what he thinks about God's answer. But what's important for us to remember and what we ultimately see that Habakkuk is going to cling to is what he knows about God. And we must do the same. And we can only do that through the means of grace. Tell me. How it is you could look at a tree, even though I know that that God's creation testifies of himself, but how could you look at a tree and go, 
man, based on this tree, I think God's going to send an innocent man to die for my sins. And, and, and he's going to Im, Im, impute his righteousness to me based on nothing that I do. How, how is it that you could look at a stone or a river and come up with any of that? You can't. You can only come to know the beauty and the breadth and the depth and the width and the height of God's love for you in and through his means of grace. And you can only apply that if you're willing to open your eyes in the power of the Spirit and look at the world with new eyes and see that God is at work in some amazing and very mysterious ways. Ways that you and I would say, I'd never do that if I was God. And it's good that we're not God, isn't it? Because the kind of stuff we would do would mess everything up, I can guarantee you. And so, listen to what uh, the good doctor, D. Martin Lloyd-Jones, has to say about this. He has a small commentary called From Fear to Faith. And he says this, We all tend to prescribe the answers to our prayers. Right? We do that, don't we? We all tend to say, Listen, God, uh, I'm not really coming to you for seeking anything other than for you to do what I want you to do, okay? So if you could just do that, me and you would be on great terms. I'll, listen, I might even throw in 4% on the tithe next week. Because the national average is 2. I don't know if you knew that. We could double it. We, he goes on. We think that God can come in only one way. But Scripture teaches us that God sometimes answers our prayers by allowing things to become much worse before they ever get better. He may sometimes do the opposite of what we anticipate. He may overwhelm us by confronting us with a Chaldean army, yet it is a fundamental principle in the life and walk of faith that we must always be prepared for the unexpected when we are dealing with God. I don't know that there's any truer words could be said about that than what the good doctor has said. And I'm... I'm with you. There's times I don't want it to be that way. I'd like for it to be more cookie cutter. I'd like for it to be more uh, linear and mathematical for those of you who are engineers. I'd like for it to work according to, if I do A, then this, this B is going to happen. I'd love for God to be a cosmic candy machine that I could pull the lever on and get exactly what I wanted. But yet, God is so gracious that he doesn't give me what I want. Because it would mean destruction for others and actually it would be my destruction as well. And so thank God that He doesn't give us in our limited and frail and broken knowledge what it is that we think we need. And He gives us instead what He alone knows that we need. Amen? So, as we're bringing this to a close, I want to read uh, a quote from a guy named Krish Kandia. And Krish is a young guy. He is British. Um, he is probably of Indian descent. And Krish, in a book that is kind of provocative but still remains orthodox, it's called Paradoxology, Why Christianity Was Never Meant to be Simple. 
says this about the book of Habakkuk. He says, Habakkuk shows us that instead of sweeping our issues under the carpet, storing up our intellectual objections, or silently seething over our unanswered prayers, it is in dialogue with God that we are most likely to find answers to our questions. Ways to worship Him through the paradoxes. Now, what do we walk away with from all this this morning, from Habakkuk 1, 1 through 11? My hope is that what you take away is that God wants for us to care, care and be thoughtful about what is going on in the world. God wants us to look around and see things that unsettle and destabilize us and for which we step back and say, this isn't right. And then to turn to Him in faith and say, but Lord... What would you say? How in the world can we ever deal with something like this? Secondly, is that we would honor God by bringing Him our tough questions. Much like Chris Candia says, instead of us going to a bunch of books and watching a bunch of YouTube videos and maybe some Facebook posts, instead of getting all that information together and justifying why we should ignore the Lord our God, Maybe what we should do is honor Him by going to Him first and letting Him answer and being patient to wait. Because I can tell you, as one who was a radical anti-theist for over 28 years, who thought that the Bible was the biggest bunch of nonsense I have ever seen in my life, if you are patient, the Lord will answer the questions that you have. And again and again and again, I've seen the Lord be good to me when I had a question. You don't think that I didn't have questions as my Uncle Randy, the one Christian in our family, was crushed under the weight of ALS? You don't think I questioned God's goodness in the midst of that? You better believe I did. You better believe I did. And yet, has God answered in a way that makes me go, Well, I'm glad you killed old Randy. No. In fact, what he has done is shown me that there's an even deeper and greater grief. I wasn't even grieving that rightly. I was grieving it selfishly instead of caring about more of what was going on in the midst of it all. Thirdly, my prayer is that we would recognize that God works in mysterious ways. Now, that's not just us whistling past the graveyard. Right? I mean, that's sometimes I, I worry that sometimes some of the things that we say often within Christianity is just us whistling past. We're just trying to say a few things to get us from point A to point B so we don't actually look and, and get, get desettled or, or, or unstabilized by things that are going on. No, this truly is something that helps us to cling to the crucified. God does work in incredibly mysterious ways. There are always, and this is critical, they're always for His redemptive purposes, which is for His glory and ultimately our greatest good. We have to remember that. And what's beautiful about this reality <clears throat> is the picture that we're given in Christ Himself. And so uh, Christ Himself coming as an innocent man um, who... who did no wrong, committed no sins, was tempted but never, ever deserved anything that he received. As we saw, in, 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 as we did Easter in the Gospel of Luke, we saw how painful it was for Christ. Remember Gethsemane. Remember the cries from the cross. 
Remember what it would have felt like to have someone slap you and say, prophesy who struck you. Or rip part of your facial hair out and dare you to do anything about it. And be treated so poorly and so awfully. And so in that great mystery that the Lord would choose to engage evil, brokenness in this world by sending his, the treasure of heaven, his only begotten son, Christ himself, perfect in all ways. He would send him to die in a way that was so confusing. Remember, the disciples just couldn't understand and they couldn't get it. And I don't think we understand and I don't think we get it either half the time. Which is why we need Christmas and Easter as these constant reminders of the, of the advent and the resurrection and the second advent of Christ. And even beautiful picture of all of that is the opportunity to see two young men be baptized today. So if uh, Brendan and Wesley would come up, this is an opportunity for us to see one of the evidences of God's great and mysterious working. Now it's not because I think that these guys are unique in their sin. It's that I think God is unique in the way that he chooses to engage and deal with it. And how beautifully it is that he would, in his great grace, make both of them to come to understand their brokenness, which both have professed, and their great need for a Savior, and that the only Savior they could have is Christ and Christ alone. There is no other way for redemption. And so this is part of their profession, but it is also part of us witnessing to the great mystery of God that he would take evil and, and take and turn it back in on itself in one of the most evil acts in all of history. Much in the same way that he's going to do to Judah with the Chaldeans. And yet it is going to bring redemption. And Christ's death on that third day beautifully spoke to the glory of God as Christ rose not guilty from the dead. And then he ascended, granting us his Holy Spirit. And he continues to make intercession. And I can't help but think that right now he's pleased before his throne as he sees two young men that he is pursued and pursuing still through the power of the Holy Spirit and sanctification. Because are you boys perfect? No. That's good for them to know, isn't it? But in baptism and their willingness to say, Lord, while we are imperfect, you are. And it is your perfection that we want to be identified with. And baptism is a wonderful picture of that as we will take the opportunity to, for them to, to be connected to the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ their Lord.